And welcome again to the When We Were Young podcast, where we take a look at the pop culture hits of our youth and see how it feels when they come back to bite us in the ass now. I'm Seth, the host most likely to violate the Harvard Compact. And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to show up in a small town after a deadly animal attack and immediately threaten local law enforcement with a lawsuit. (laughs) On our previous episode of the show, we revisited three hit creature features from the early 1990s in Tremors, Arachnophobia, and Congo. You can hear all our sandwormy, spidery, monkey thoughts on that episode. This time around, we're covering the second half of this formative decade in our lives, revisiting the films Anaconda from 1997 and Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea, both released in 1999. First up, we have a film that snaked and slithered its way into the hearts of herpetological nerds everywhere. Anaconda was directed by Luis Yosa, written by Hans Bauer, Jim Cash, and Jack Epps Jr. The film was released April 11th, 1997, and had an estimated budget of $45 million. It stars Jennifer Lopez, Ice Cube, John Voight, Eric Stoltz, Jonathan Hyde, Owen Wilson, and Danny Trejo. It also stars Frank Welker as the voice of the Anaconda. <laughs> Frank, are you here? Was that you? I did notice that there was a lot of uh, screaming uh, from the anaconda and various other animals that do not scream in these movies. There was screaming and arachnophobia, too. I just thought I would let that one lie. Yeah. It's a basic plot synopsis. A nature documentary film crew is traversing the Amazon River and rainforest in search of the long-lost tribe of the Shirishama. They rescue an infamous animal poacher who pretends to act like a tour guide for the crew, but it turns out he's actually hunting a world-record-length green anaconda. The anaconda devours the crew one by one as the crew try to free themselves of the poacher, played by John Voight. There were four taglines, and the one I liked best was... It will take your breath away. Do, 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 do. Yeah. The film was released April 11th, 1997, and had an estimated budget of $45 million. Anaconda opened at number one and stayed at number one for exactly two weeks, then quickly dropped off. It was a pretty significant box office hit, going on to earn over $65 million in the domestic box office, over $71 million worldwide, for a total of o- around $137 million worldwide. Critical acclaim for Anaconda came somewhat un- unexpectedly from Roger Ebert. Writing in the Chicago Sun-Times, Anaconda did not disappoint me. It's a slick, scary, funny creature feature, beautifully photographed and splendidly acted in high-adventure style. Its snakes are thoroughly satisfying. But overall, the movie received much more negative reviews than Ebert's verdict would suggest. One such review was from the Washington Post's own Rita Kempley, getting us right back on the Rita Beat. Back on the Rita Beat, back on the Rita Beat, back on the Rita Beat! I'm being paid for this, correct? She wrote... 
The price of a nice alligator bag is scarier than Anaconda, a herpetological horror flick certain to draw more hisses than shrieks. Basically, what we have here is Jaws with fangs, the warmed-over story of a snake the length of the Jersey Turnpike in relentless pursuit of a river barge load of eats. And Rita closed with, Mr. Whipple squeezing his Charmin is scarier than this phony baloney computer effects-driven anaconda. Boo. I, I, I love our Rita, but for one, the snake does not have fangs. Ebert also made that mistake in his review, I noticed. Lots of comments about the fangs. There are not fangs. It has rows of sharp pointy teeth, but not fangs per se. In the movie, it's got, it's got, it's got many rows of teeth. Awards recognition. Anaconda was nominated for six Razzies. And in all these nominated categories, they lost to Kevin Costner in The Postman and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman in Double Team, respectively. <laughs> oh, we forgot that creature feature. <laughs> Dennis Rodman, we completely we forgot to include him with the anacondas and sharks. Throwing away the first episode, starting over again right now. Very sad that they lost out in this appropriate award recognition. I mean, which, like, anaconda, memorable. Who remembers Double Team? A few fun anaconda facts. The Anaconda animatronics in this movie were designed and built by Walt Conti, who's kind of a wizard of animatronics, who built the whales in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, the whale in Free Willy, the titular Anaconda, and the sharks in Deep Blue Sea. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for his work on The Perfect Storm. The creature count is really just two, even though there's a cast of millions of smaller snakes. The largest animatroniconda, which was known as the Queen Snake, was a 2.5-ton, 40-foot-long model. Wow. Ice-T has claimed that Jennifer Lopez was nearly crushed to death by this animatronic. The smaller warrior model of Snake was a scant 1,500 pounds and a mere 25 feet long. Really a svelte anaconda there. Honestly, is it even an anaconda at that point? Have a sandwich! <laughs> the 40-foot animatroniconda now lives in San Francisco at the California Academy of Sciences, and the outer skin has been removed from the model in order to display the inside and show how animatronics are constructed, which I think is pretty cool. One of a few major free TV channels in South Africa is named ETV, and they've made a national running gag out of airing the movie Anaconda during their evening primetime slot. They've aired the movie Anaconda several times every year since the mid-2000s. Wow. I love that very much. I don't know if that would be possible now because, you know, there are so many different streaming channels and audiences are fractured, but I just really wish that that idea, like, caught on in America. I feel like they should have just been like, and now you're local news and, like, breaking news and <laughs> exactly. then just play Anaconda. From what I read, that's how they do it, and I absolutely love that. That's amazing. The last fun Anaconda fact. There have been no less than four direct-to-video Anaconda sequels, including one that is a crossover of Lake Placid versus Anaconda. <laughs> Even though Lake Placid is not the creature in Lake Placid. We'll get to that movie shortly. <laughs> yeah. Chris, did you see Anaconda growing up? And what do you think of that snake now? Anna, yes. I don't know. <laughs> 
I tried something. It didn't really work. Yes, I definitely saw Anaconda in theaters. I really want to say opening weekend. In fact, I even have a memory of my family being on vacation and me insisting that we see Anaconda while on vacation. I can't remember where or truly verify this, but I'm pretty sure I made it a full family event. It's a family destination. (laughs) This movie was released in a real sweet spot for me as a moviegoer. Really anything from 1996 and 1997, like, I cannot vouch for as a good or bad movie. It's just, like, it was a movie that I saw at a time that is very special to me. I was, you know, about 13, and this was, like, the first time I was starting to see movies that were aimed at adults, or at least older teenagers in theaters for the first time, so everything was new to me. Other people might have seen Anaconda and said that's derivative of other movies, but to me it wasn't, because I had not seen other movies. It was all (laughs) new to me, so I really, like, fell in love with a lot of movies, specifically at this time that just represent, like, the first time... Like, I basically popped my Creature Feature Cherry (laughs) on Anaconda, at least a certain kind of Creature Feature. Like, this more, like, as we're going into these other movies, like, they're a little bit more savage and horror-leaning versus the other ones, which we all found more comedic in a lot of ways. And so this was, like, my gateway into, like, a more horror-leaning creature feature. So, yeah, I saw this movie, very much enjoyed it, had it in a widescreen VHS. Nice. And have revisited it pretty frequently um, (laughs) since then. Like, it it was not like a, oh, let me see how this holds up. Like, I knew exactly how Anaconda holds up. (laughs) And it is from a tree while a man is falling down and then eating that man in midair. Yes. I most certainly saw this film in theaters as well. Probably subjected one or both of my parents to it. Loved it instantaneously. My love for it has never diminished. Especially did not diminish now, re-watching this with you. I have seen this movie so many times now, I've lost count. It's one of my favorite trashy-ass movies. And it is trashy. And it's, like you're saying, it is both, it's a much more grim affair, it's not approaching anything with a light tone, but it also ends up being funnier by virtue of that, and by virtue of the seriousness with which it takes itself. Yeah, and I mean, re-watching it now, if anything, it's just even funnier. Thinking about the things that this movie is picking up on tonally for movies like Apocalypse Now... <laughs> Or even, like, Vietnam War movies, (laughs) you know? The seriousness of it and the seriousness of the approach contrasted with just how completely convoluted the plot is, how little sense any of it makes, the absolute abandon of one Mr. John Voight... (laughs) Just all of these elements, to me, make this movie so very entertaining, um, and still, I think it's like I, I, I think it's become a cult classic kind of movie, deservedly so. Yeah, I, I still loved it. Now, discerning listeners will notice that Becky is not with us, uh, <laughs> as as mentioned in our last episode. But in case you're, you know, tuning into this one... In case you're wondering, we are not wrapped around Becky constricting her windpipe and preventing her from offering a dissenting opinion here. Speak for yourself. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, I was going to mention this in the last episode, but I decided it was better to mention it here because I think she would have watched Tremors and Congo and Arachnophobia with us. This is the episode that Becky would absolutely not join us for. I doubt she's even listened to this. She steadfastly refused to watch Anaconda. We, we mentioned it before, but I think really this whole trio of movies is a whole different kind of creature feature. Yeah, we're we're going into some really dark, deep territory here. Deep water, dark jungle, deepest, bluest. Also, just to note, I got worms, bugs, and apes. <laughs> you got all the good predators, like the cool ones. You got I the did, snakes. I the didn't want to brag about it. I didn't want to brag about it, but I did notice that. It's just how it worked out. What can I say? What can I say? Anyway, this movie is so cheap and so expensive. <laughs> It really straddles that line amazingly because it obviously is filmed on location. It looks really great. Like, it looks like they went to a place and filmed it there. Absolutely. It has an authenticity to it that you don't even... Like, even in Congo, I don't think often no. felt like you were really in Africa. Congo felt so much more like a soundstage than this ever did. So, like, on that level, this movie has, like, a real, like... Verse militude <laughs> that is not necessarily matched by the um, plot mechanics, but like we lumped in all these movies together, and they obviously have so much in common, and yet each of them has their own unique relationship to this genre. And this one is really unique in that it is the least of all the movies, including the ones that we'll talk about later, comedic in terms of obviously attempting comedy, having things that are jokes, having things that are meant to be funny. Tremors and Arachnophobia were very, very comedic. Congo, slightly more questionable about how much it was trying to be funny, but definitely had direct intentional comedy with, like, Amy smoking, drinking. And then the next two movies also definitely lean into comedy at times. This one does not have any jokes, really. Nothing about it says that it's supposed to be funny, except John Voight's performance, but... Even that is not a quote-unquote funny performance. It is a campy performance, which is not to say it's a bad performance. I mean, we're going to have to dig into him, like, way more than even just this. But in general, I just found this movie, like, I I was trying to define what it is. Because I don't... It's... I don't think it's, like, a bad movie that doesn't know that it's silly and is, like, therefore funny. Because I do think it knows what it is. It's comedic in the same way that the rest of these movies are comedic. It gives you the same response. It's like, oh, watching this is funny, enjoyable, like, I'm not taking this seriously. But this is the one that seems least like it's actually doing that, and I can't quite figure out how knowing it is and how not knowing it is. And I think for me, that's one of the ongoing mysteries of it that makes me keep going back to it over and over.
I get the overriding sense that, at least at the very top of this movie, like writer and director, I feel like they were very serious. I feel like they thought they were making Apocalypse Now, but as a horror movie, or this movie aims to be like Friday the 13th taking place in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Hmm. But like Jason is the biggest snake that's ever existed. And I love that as like a conceptual like idea, like as a pitch, I really do feel like that's what they were trying to make, but whether they were trying to do that in a dramatic, serious way or in the unintentionally, intentionally campy way, I just literally can't tell. And it's like, that's, I think that's part of the weird energy of it that makes it so fun to me. We got to start with like the plot of this movie is makes absolutely no sense. It is so convoluted. Everything happens because the plot has to happen and they have to come up with a plot device regarding the snake. That's it. There's no story really being told beyond that. Eric Stoltz is, like, supposed to be somewhat of the lead role in this movie, but he's, like, immediately incapacitated by inhaling a wasp, which was kind of a story point that I kind of liked, because I like the idea that every single bit of animal and insect life in this environment is predating upon these humans because they just don't belong there. They should not be there, and yet they've invaded. And of course, there's a ton of setup in this movie that could lend itself to having something to say, because it's literally about this group of American filmmakers invading the Amazon, trying to get like their like Nat Geo money, you know, and like reach and contact undiscovered tribes. And nowadays, like people like this would be filming like a 10 season reality docuseries. Naked and afraid. Exactly, exactly. But it was just really like this movie chose to be that convoluted in a way that completely keeps it from being grounded and like keeps it from being like from having like dramatic weight and of course like i fault the writing for that but i don't know if that's intentional or not like i don't know if that was done in service of the silliness like i really don't know yeah i kind of feel like I would have liked to have a scene like back in LA where they're putting this movie together to give it some context because they do feel really out of context. And even though they do kind of explain the dynamics of the crew and what's happening, there's something weird about it starting. Like they're getting right on the boat and going on the river and it just like, it doesn't really ground any of them in as feeling like real people. Jennifer Lopez is basically, she's like the director of this movie and they set up that she's a USC film graduate as is ice cube (laughs) which is just a funny thing to say just in general (laughs) but like this is supposed to be her big break but i yeah i just wish that there was a little bit more there because that kind of just becomes a background because as soon as like they get invaded by an evil poacher like their goals for making the movie go by the wayside until everything's resolved so yeah like i i really want to focus on the casting and talk about that because the casting in this movie is really diverse and i really love the fact that in theory jennifer lopez really is the lead of this movie But all of that falls away. Nearly all the characters are very bland. And the moment that John Voight shows up in this movie, the movie is entirely about him and the snake and nothing else. Nothing else. There are no more characters anymore. After John Voight shows up, the movie is like, happening on rails or like on autopilot. Carrie Wurr's hair color is like the only thing that changes after that. I also really appreciated the diversity. I think it, I give it a little bit more credit, I think, because John Voight is playing a 
Paraguayan. So I don't know. Is he a white man? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> uh, who's to say? Really, he his accent is um, coming from somewhere not even necessarily from Earth. We'll get there. So count him colorless. I think <laughs> at this point. Uh, but you have um, the white characters, pretty much all the first ones to die, and then you have the Latina woman and the black man as the two survivors, and Jennifer Lopez is the final girl of this movie. I really liked her performance in this movie. This was her first role after Selena, only like three weeks after Selena came out. This wasn't like a movie that she got off of Selena. Like, this was part of her big breakout. And I think, like, her character is certainly not super well-developed, but, like, she does give the something like an authenticity to this role that I think a lot of actresses wouldn't. Again, like a Denise Richards. <laughs> Poor Denise. I'm picking on her a lot for these uh, episodes. She's our barometer. <laughs> but I believe her in this role. Like, I believe that she's like capable in this environment, which is not something I would say about every actress. Even like Laura Linney, as much as we liked her in Congo, like, she didn't feel like she was really that character. I think of all the like female leads in these movies, she's the most believable and the most capable, despite this being a ridiculous movie. Imagine something this big captured a lie. That's worth a lot of money, Gary. Jesus. Please, people. Don't make me out of monster. I didn't eat the Captain Mateo. Come on, everybody. We are not sure that Mateo is dead. So we're just going to wait here till the morning. Are you insane? Where do you think he went? A walk in the woods? Now listen, we've got to get the hell out of here. Get a grip, Westridge. I've got a grip. We're not leaving. If it was you out there, you'd want us to stay too. Listen, if it was me out there, I'd be dead. Did you see? Just go into your cabin and lock the door. Like a bad boy. All right, all right. Where are my shoes? Where are my shoes? We're gonna aim some lights at the boat. That's a good idea. Lights are a good idea. But I also think that she's the most dominated and disempowered woman of any of the female leads in this. Like, J-Lo's character is a filmmaker. She's the director. She should show that she has some kind of vision. But she does not have that. She's constantly led around and bossed around by the men surrounding her. It literally doesn't even matter which man is trying to boss her around. Any man in this movie can just show up and tell her where to go and what to do, and she'll do it. And that happens with Eric Stoltz. It happens with John Voight. Like, she has no real agency in this movie, I think, aside from the action hero moments. And, like, I love her charisma and her, like character performance like i do think she does a great job inhabiting that character but because the whole thing is just like plot snake plot snake and it doesn't really feel like it's actually about these characters i felt like her transformation like into an action badass wasn't really believable to me and i really really didn't like that ice t is the one who delivers the final blows and ultimately kills the main anaconda because like even by the conventions of the slasher movie the final girl does not get the final kill yeah I guess I was speaking about her action moments, not the plot of, like, her 
directorial sure. thing. That I wish was more developed because John Voight comes aboard and tries to kind of sabotage the crew and steer it toward capturing the snake. That's what he wants. And he convinces Gary, the sound man played by Owen Wilson, that this is a good idea to kind of like go in on it with him. It would have made more sense if the director or the producer was the one who had been kind of convinced that this is like a great thing to film because the sound man isn't going to get any clout off of having filmed this. Like he's not even really filming the sound. I mean, that's an, <laughs> an argument for another day of, you know, filmmaking versus Militude, but uh, but yeah, it, it would make more sense if it was her character or if he was the director and she was like more of a lowly crew member and then had to end up like it'd be more interesting kind of if she was the sound person and then she ended up being the one who is the only member of this crew to survive. And again, like I feel like they have all the elements here to have like even just on its own existing merits, like amplified this stuff. Like so there's this character, Jonathan Hyde, who plays Westridge and he's like the Sir Richard Attenborough, like, effete, haughty narrator figure, like, documentary host. And there always has to be a smarmy bastard in every creature feature. Every smarmy bastard in a creature feature has to have a golf club with them. And they nearly always have to wear straw hats at some point in the film. I liked Westridge, and I liked his performance, but I feel like all of it's taking place in a different movie. So where's Westridge? I know he checked in. He's probably just catching up on his beauty sleep. Careful! Careful! Oh no! Fragile! Expensive wine! Christ! Morning! Morning! How was your flight? Actually, it was a bloody nightmare. Ongoing, I think. One zoom, one oh. You! Stow this in my room, will you? Excuse me? I'm not the bellhop, I'm the production manager. Then surely you can manage my things into my room. Ass. You know, in some cultures, that's a sign of friendship and respect when somebody cares enough to ask you to carry their bags. Respect this, sound man. <laughs> it's not me who said Mr. that. Mr. Westridge, Terry Flores. Terry, this is a pleasure. Professor Kale lent me some of your short films. I thought they were very promising. God, it's well, hot. Are we exactly thanks. on the equator? Welcome aboard, I guess. I think he likes you. Oh, you felt that too. Hmm. And I feel like it so easily could have been a dynamic of J-Lo having to contend with Westridge and John Voight's character, like, going head-to-head and trying to dominate each other to see who can be on camera the most. You know, like, it could have been that, like, battle of egos. You know, like, they, again, it feels like the elements are there, and it's like, as much as this movie entertains me, I also do wish that it had been a better movie, because I think a better version of the movie would have made it even better. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, little things that could have been tweaked to just give it a little bit more because they really don't use the filmmaking thing very much i guess it makes sense but it all like really what you'd probably have is him like westridge doing voiceover so he wouldn't actually be on the film shoot or they would like find the tribe and then bring him in because he's right apparently is a kind of a star probably he never would have gone on that journey with them someone in that position Yeah, I think it would have been more interesting to have it be, like, the typical, like, white male SC director just graduated who's, like, trying to make his, like, cool movie. And then 
gets everyone into this mess, like, by following John Voight, and then it's, like, up to like, the cool, like, cinematographer and whoever, J-Lo, ends up being in this different version to be like, okay, we're gonna save the day, and maybe even pick up the camera at the end and then finish the, you know, sh- documentary. Or, like, what I initially thought, because it had been a minute since I rewatched it, like, I wish Westridge had been, like, the money guy. You know, I wish he'd been, like, you know, maybe the director was his nephew or something, and he was the rich shithead USC grad, and was trying to impress his uncle, you know, trying to, you know, get these crew members help on the cheap to try to make his big break. Like, there were so many other little ways they could have played it. And I liked Jonathan Hyde's performance as Westridge. I think he did a lot with that material. Yeah. But now we have to speak of the best work done by any John in this motion picture. Let's talk about John Voight and nothing else for the rest of this podcast. This was my introduction to the Midnight Cowboy himself. I mean, this is an Oscar winner. And for this movie, he wins Best Supporting Ponytail. He wins Worst Supporting Voice Coach. And the Academy's ongoing refusal to recognize these as valid Oscar categories is an affront to cinema itself. Best wink. Best wink. Not even, not of 1997, but of all time. Like, if there's all-time Oscars, best wink. So, this (laughs) performance is so bad it's good. Also good. Very committed. Did John Voight come onto set with these choices? I feel like he did, because this doesn't feel like a vision in the screenplay exactly. Like, it feels like it was, like, there's one, like, line written in the screenplay of direction that was like, oh, he's like this. And John Voight, like, made a meal of it. Yes. He is basically the anaconda swallowing this whole movie. So, there are so many questions that can be asked. One of the most important questions, what accent is he doing? My answers are, sometimes he's doing every accent all at once. Like, every accent that's ever existed in all of human speech, in all of civilization. Other times, he's just doing the voice of Steven Seagal, and it's a fantastic Steven Seagal impression. I'm going to say that when you can't breathe, you can't enunciate. (laughs) I think he's doing Tommy Wiseau in the room sometimes. It's also there. That's there. I think he saw Congo, saw Tim Curry, and was like, mm, I'm going to outdo that. That is baby stuff. <laughs> I think he's doing Robert De Niro met in his menacing roles, but at the dentist, where he has had some <laughs> Novocaine. And, like, the cotton balls stuffed into his mm-hmm. mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> he says he is Paraguayan in this movie. And so I looked it up. <gasps> I watched some videos with Mormon missionaries who had gone to Paraguay and then had made videos for future missionaries to understand the dialect. In Paraguay, they speak a mixture of Spanish and Guarani, which is an indigenous language. Okay. And it was described as they close their mouths when they talk, so they're not articulating very well. They tend not to pronounce their S's. John Voight is, like, practically hissing sometimes. He's definitely doing S's. He definitely does the S's. (laughs) But I honestly think that he heard or read or watched something with real Paraguayans and actually is doing something that is based in reality. Whether it's executed well, I can't tell you because I couldn't actually find a video of anyone speaking like this. I do think that he found a real thing and, and was trying to do it. Okay, I've got five favorite John Voight quotes from this movie. Only five? I I know. It's hard to narrow them down. Go, go, go back to your mother. That was one. He says that as he throws a snake, just straight up throws it into the water. Never look in the eyes of those you kill. They will haunt you forever. I know. That's number two. 
Buenas noches, beautiful. That's number three. That's one of my favorites. Number four, time to wake up. Monkey blood. <laughs> he says that as he's throwing a bucket of monkey blood on J-Lo and Ice-T. My other favorite John Voight moment is, of course, the wink. When John Voight is briefly vomited up by the snake after having been eaten and gives a thumbs up to the survivors and a wink. Uh, he has a monologue at one point, and I don't know the whole monologue, but the crux of it is <laughs> you have the privilege of hearing your bones break as he eats you. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites. I feel like I, that was like I was really doing a, more of a Dracula than a, than a John Voight. There's but... some Nosferatu in his performance. Yeah. How was this? Anaconda skin. Is snakes out there this big? This skin is three or four years old. Whatever shed it has grown since then. But something like this has made a meal of our dear captain. What? Snakes don't eat people. Oh, they don't? Anacondas are a perfect killing machine. They have heat sensors. A warm body like Mateo's. In the water, wasn't hard to find. Mm-hmm. They strike, wrap around you, hold you tighter than your true love, and you get the privilege of hearing your bones break before the power of the embrace causes your veins to explode. Now, Mateo's probably just lost. Oh, wake up! Part of the magic and the mystery of this particular tour and why I keep rewatching this movie is that you can't tell what was intended to be funny and what was fully pot committed serious. And it feels like John Voight was fully serious and completely believe what you said and absolutely believe that he did his homework, what he thought was his homework, and he brought this in fully formed and ready to go. And that everyone else in this crew and cast and on the set, whatever they felt they could say, they couldn't, they didn't feel like they could say it to John Voight. You can't give the Midnight Cowboy notes. I don't know if a better version of this movie necessarily would have been as entertaining because I feel like maybe a better version of this movie would pretty necessarily have constrained or constricted (laughs) the lengths that John Voight goes to. But it's incredible yeah just to get it across i feel like the way he would say the title of this movie is anaconda (laughs) (laughs) yes do you tosses it off a lot like a drunken slur but an evil one it probably is a drunken slur in some other languages and cultures Mm -hmm. just to talk about this cast in general is like this is by far of all these movies they're starriest cast a lot of them because they became bigger stars after this movie not before but oscar winner john voight j-lo huge superstar this is two years before she launched her music career so at this point just an actress owen wilson very big star leader future marry me collaborator with jennifer lopez (laughs) eric stoltz pretty big deal not in this movie but (laughs) ice t was a music legend before this yes you know and i think I think he does a great job in this movie. Like, I think this does credibly establish him as a movie star. Yeah, he's great in this movie. Up to go forward, down to go back. Red knobs. Up to go fast, down to go slow. Wheel. Four turns hard over, left and right. If you get into trouble, turn off the ignition. All right? Take it for a spin. That's it. Take us back to civilization. Shit. No problem. (laughs) Take us back to... Crisp sheets and hot showers. The playoffs in a six-pack. 
18 holes of golf and a quadruple gin and tonic. LA traffic and my cellular phone. Don't start. <laughs> <laughs> We have to talk about the chemistry, the raw jungle sexual connection between J-Lo and Eric Stoltz. What a steamy, believable romance. I have a larger <laughs> problem with that, which is just like, why Eric Stoltz in this movie? Why? Why this character? Why does he survive? That's the weird thing. Is like, why? They have him live only to like lay around for the rest of the movie, not doing anything. Briefly like saving the day in a way that could have been saved by either Ice Cube or J-Lo. Was yeah. not necessary to yeah. like have his character survive just to do that. Yeah. Like, it just would have been a more interesting story if he's dead and, like, now she's like, oh, like, I've lost the person who knows this environment. Like, he is unconscious, so it's like, technically she has, but it, it just doesn't have the same impact if he's, like, dead, gone, like, she is now in charge of this expedition that, and she's out of her depth. It's so it's just a very odd... I can't imagine what the logic was. Did he just show up on set and he's like, no, nah, I'm not gonna do this. There's something in the mouth. Oh, God. Oh, damn, what's that? Uh, Wasp. Deadly. Poisonous. Well, he's still not breathing. What are we gonna do? Oh God, how did this happen? Alcohol. I got whiskey in my flask. Quickly. What's that for? What are you? Ooh. Oh. That's it. It's gonna be over. Or did he have like a four picture contractual deal the studio was obligated to do and they were just like, okay, just like be mostly not in this movie. <laughs> what why not just kill him? Like I know, I know. I don't understand it. I want to talk about the snakes. I do prefer creature features where they come up with original creatures and monsters, I have to say. I don't love when they make monsters out of creatures that are not monstrous animals in real life. That's my favorite. I mean, these these kinds of snakes are not biters. They are swallowers. That's kind of the whole point. They constrict and they swallow. They don't hunt humans. They even, like, I read on Screen Rant that the snakes were given slanted pupils, the animatronics were, to make them appear even more dangerous than they are. But having said that, in part, a lot of my love of this movie is because the snake kills are really fun. My favorite snake kill was Westridge, when he's trying to hide inside a waterfall, and the snake is coming after him, and he thinks that jumping from behind the waterfall into the water below is going to save him, help him sneak past. But... As Westridge tries to leap to safety, the snake drops down from a giant tree and intercepts him mid-air. With its mouth. Not even, like, with its body, which would make sense, because its body is strong. But in his mouth, like, a falling man, that would hurt your fucking jaw. But it is not a real snake. Yeah, these effects are hit or miss. Kind of miss when it's CGI, which is pretty obvious. But yeah. 
Snakes also move so weirdly, like, anyway, that it kind of doesn't matter. Like, snakes already look fake in real life anyway. Yes. They, they don't have any legs, and they move. How is that possible? <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, there's just something alien about, like, a snake this big anyway. So, mostly works. And, and when they're practical, they're pretty good. And, and, yeah, there's a lot of inventive stuff. What I love about this movie is that it uses the real animal and its behavior. Obviously, it does not eat people, attack people. That part is made up. But, like, the other behavior of it, like, eating its prey, regurgitating its prey, all the squeezing. All the squeezing. It feels like this animal would actually behave, minus the part about eating people. Yeah. It it feels the most, I think, like its actual creature of all these movies. That might be right. That might be right. And and I think that's... I think it's a very large part of the fun of it. Like, to me, it really is. Like, this, the snakes and the John Void of it are the two biggest reasons this movie is so fun. What I love about, like, a creature feature is feeling like if I were in this situation, if I were to go in the jungle, like, this could happen to me. As outlandish as it is, as unrealistic as the, like, animals coming after you is, if there were a killer anaconda that, like, you could just step in the jungle and, and it would happen like this. Like, there's there's not a lot of, like, extra, like, setup needed. Like, you, it's just this elemental sort of man versus beast story that I, I find really plausible, even as, like, ridiculous as these movies end up being. And I think we should definitely mention the most important visual advancement in filmmaking that's contained in Anaconda. Clearly not the creature itself, but the development of what I like to call Conda Vision, which is the first cold-blooded person perspective, uh, the Dutch angles, and the cutaway shots in this movie to depict the snake's POV. Yeah, I kind of wish that they had filmed the snake, like, looking sideways, since it's always looking sideways when it's POV. Yeah, it's only first-person perspective. Can't not mention Owen Wilson's face, like smashed through the anaconda belly as he's like swimming along not something that would really happen but a very fun visual very fun visual and also i I actually genuinely enjoyed i don't know if it's when the snake is swallowing owen wilson or who but there was one perspective shot that was from inside the belly of the snake as it attacked someone and i thought that was genuinely inventive and really smart yeah so many just great kind of campy moments in this yeah i mean even for me like the image near the end of the snake entirely on fire and going for and one screaming la- and screaming and going for one last attack. I really love. It was one of the stupidest moments too, just because like a snake would realize that it's burning, but <laughs> but a great compelling image. It vomits a dead monkey at someone. <laughs> what I also found really smart about this movie, very different from a lot of creature features, I don't think any of the other ones have a human villain. So I like that it creates conflict in a way that like. It doesn't force the characters to have to act stupidly to get themselves in trouble because he is the one that's forcing them to do all these things. So there's actually like very little like stupid human behavior in this movie. Yeah, it's the people are surprisingly undumb (laughs) for for what has to happen. (laughs) The movie itself, we cannot claim such, such claims, but... Yeah. My only last note was just that there's a pretty legendary blooper in this movie. There's a shot where they reversed the film of the boat going down the water because they clearly either ran out of money or forgot to get coverage, and they couldn't film any more shots of the boat on the water. So there's a shot where they reverse the footage to reverse the direction of the boat. And so when you watch this, like, five to ten seconds, you see a waterfall prominently in the left side of the frame blatantly flowing upwards. It really bothers me every time I see it. (laughs) Mistakes really bother me, and I'm very... 
Like as soon as I see a mistake, it like haunts me forever. If I made the mistake, you know, like if I misspell something, I will never not see it. So now that I've seen that, I can never unsee it. And it, I have to say it mars the entire movie. It, <laughs> this was a golden Oscar winning movie in my mind. And now it's trash. Lawrence of Anaconda. <laughs> I think that's enough of this snake. Now we move on to a lake. Placid, that is. This is the body of water episode. We got the river and then the lake. We get to the ocean. Lake Placid. Directed by Steve Miner, who directed Halloween H2O and the second and third installments of Friday the 13th. Was written by David E. Kelly. Lake Placid stars Bridget Fonda, Bill Pullman, Oliver Platt, Brendan Gleeson, Betty White, and Mariska Hargitay. (laughs) That old gang of people that you expect to be in a movie together. I'm rooting for the crocodile. I hope he swallows your friends whole. You might want to arrest me for that, too. Is that a crime? To wish the chewing of law enforcement? I'm not sure, ma'am. Lake Placid was released July 16th, 1999 in the U.S. On a budget of $27 million, Lake Placid earned nearly $32 million at the domestic box office and also was really popular in rentals just based on what I remember personally from Blockbuster Video. Critical reviews are best summed up in just a few sentences from two critics. Roger Ebert wrote in the Chicago Sun-Times, This is the kind of movie that actors discuss in long, sad talks with their agents. And James Berardinelli wrote in Real Views, Lake Placid isn't so bad that it's good, it's so bad that it's really bad. (laughs) The tagline for Lake Placid was, You'll never know what bit you. Lake Placid facts. Director Steve Miner took on directing duties for Halloween H2O while he was waiting to shoot Lake Placid, which had to push back its original shoot dates because of inclement weather. Bridget Fonda and Bill Pullman also worked together before this in the movie Singles from 1992. This is basically a direct sequel. Oh, clearly. Betty White's character admits to killing her husband by hitting him in the head with a skillet. On Boston Legal, a David E. Kelly series, Betty White also plays a character who kills a man by hitting him in the head with a skillet. There's only one major creature featured here. The creature in this film, A Deadly Crocodile, was created by none other than Stan Winston, who made an animatronic 30-foot-long croc outfitted with hydraulics that powered it to move its head and tail and snap its jaws that could function fully underwater. It could actually swim, albeit very slowly, so it was usually being towed through the water by boat to make it swim faster. I thought that was actually incredibly impressive. Um, especially the fact that they could operate it entirely underwater. Yeah. The 30-foot-long animatronic was complemented, or some would say made much worse, by quite a bit of crocodile CGI footage. Mm. This movie's setup and plot beats really line up with a 1993 episode of The X-Files called Quagmire from Season 3. It's about a large killer alligator in a sleepy small town that eats a cow right off a farm, and then also that attacks and kills a diver. Hmm. In real life, the largest crocodile in captivity was Lolong, who measured over 20 feet long at his death. So this film, surprisingly, is not realistic in that one particular way and only in that way. Finally, there have been five direct-to-video Lake Placid sequels, including the aforementioned Lake Placid versus Anaconda. No, I did not watch that or any of these sequels. (laughs) Yeah, these sequels, which I have not seen, all feature a woman in a bikini in a crocodile's mouth. Very meticulous about the cover art of these yes. movies and which species they've got there. I think this is one of the ones where like the sequels are on multiple different streaming platforms. And yeah, I saw all the posters and they're all that. It's like 
jaws with alligator. Yeah, they look like offensively bad, and that's just based on the the posters because I certainly have not seen the movies, but also are all named like Lake Placid versus Anaconda as if like the lake is fighting the Anaconda. Like yes. the crocodile's name is not Lake Placid. Like they seem to have completely missed that fact. No, it's it's the tides and the flow of the lake that is actually combating these creatures. <laughs> I want the movie to just be like the Anaconda shows up and it's just a lake and it's like, well what now what am I gonna do? <laughs> I want it to be, like, a tidal wave that, like, wipes out a crocodile. The crocodile's like, what the fuck? I came 3,000 miles to a place I would never live in nature, and this squall takes me out? Fuck you. In my version, the crocodile talks. Did you see Lake Placid back then, and what do you think of this crocodile situation now? I didn't see it in theater, surprisingly. (laughs) Even though I was at the height of, A, my love of preacher features, and B, my love of David E. Kelly shows, I was an avid watcher of The Practice and a little series I may have mentioned on this program before called Ally McBeal. That's my obligatory one. I don't even mean it, but I have to do it. I think maybe this just didn't stay in theaters for me. (laughs) Because I, I guess I was not of age to see a rated R movie and maybe could not get a parent to take me. (laughs) So I rented it when it came out and like, it was considered a bomb. I watched it. It didn't work for me then. And I had not seen it since then. It was not a, like an Anaconda situation. This is the one I remembered the least of any of these movies. And I think the only one I had seen only one time. So I had no idea who was going to live or die. You know, you can kind of guess, but I really didn't know. And then pretty much no one dies, so really, (laughs) maybe that's why I didn't remember. I appreciate this a little bit more now. Like, it is a strange tone for a movie. It is very heavily leaning into comedy, almost to the extent that it is not even a horror movie, except for a very brief bursts. I think the special effects are great. The practical effects, not the CGI. The crocodile, like, the real one looks great and is, I think, one of the best creature designs of any of these movies. And it is a scary creature. Like, it is a shark that can go on land. So, as a creature, I think it's a very good creature for a creature feature. Because sharks... You know, they have that weakness. I would agree. I very much enjoy some of this movie, but it is very much missing a third act. Like, it just feels (laughs) unfinished, honestly. So... Yeah, I think it's maybe two-thirds of a great, good monster movie. I think it has a fun setup. It has some fun characters. I enjoy the comedy of it. I wish it was, like, a full, complete movie, because it's it's honestly very short, and I honestly, I don't even know if they, like, just stopped filming at some point. What about you? Your face is telling me you don't enjoy Lake Placid? This movie is a crock of shit. Fair. I think we can just end the episode there, because I'm not going to do better pun-wise than crock of shit. David E. Kelly, I have enjoyed some things intermittently that he's made, but I think in this, the snottiness and shallowness of David E. Kelly as a writer just dominates everything. I find this movie fucking obnoxious. I find the comedy obnoxious, snotty, beats you over the head with every punchline. None of it's earned. There are no characters in this movie. Like, Bridget Fonda is, like, the most trite, like, city slicker stereotype. Oliver Platt is genuinely gross and a sexual harasser. And frankly, like, Oliver Platt, I'll go more into him later, but, like, he should have been eaten immediately. The crocodiles are on screen for less than four minutes of this film's one hour, 22 minute running time, which should be 
be illegal. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You gotta feature that creature, damn it. Just, I found Lake Placid entirely forgettable. This was one of the creature features I saw only once. I think I only saw it on video or like on cable. And I'd entirely forgotten it like since then. And I entirely forgot it now. The moment I finished watching this movie, all of the plot just escaped out the other side of my head. Granted, I've got a lot of life shit going on right now, but I forgot this movie the moment it was over and I had to like rewatch most of it. And I feel like they make even the things in this movie that should be really tense, suspenseful scenes. They're like lots of boat chases and stuff of like trying to rescue each other. I feel like even those just end up feeling very ho-hum, anticlimactic. Like you said, like most of the people in this movie don't end up being killed. Like there are very few kills in this. So like those all feel anticlimactic. Even the crocodile like head chomp isn't all that impressive because CGI was not at a point where they could make that realistic looking. I don't know. Like, maybe I, I also had the thought that maybe I'd just become completely immune to the stupid charms of this kind of movie after watching so many of them, and especially after rewatching Anaconda and how much I love it. But, like, I just thought, I thought none of these characters were characters. So, like, Oliver Platt plays a mythology professor who spends his time traveling the world to swim with crocodiles. You know, a natural connection. Bridget Fonda is a paleontologist sent to Lake Placid to investigate a tooth. Like, these characters were devised by Mad Libs, and the plot is just one contrivance after another. I had to watch this movie, like, twice to actually perceive consciously what was happening, but it gave me hives. I just disliked the hell out of watching this movie. If you like Lake Placid, you'll of Alan McBeal. This movie is an episode of Alan McBeal in a lot of ways. It feels like a TV episode. It totally feels like a TV episode. Bridget Fonda apparently was offered the role of Alan McBeal so she's definitely playing basically Allie McBeal. But like, this is a monster movie and not a TV show about a character who could be like fleshed out and given more dimension. So it doesn't come off super well. I mean, I actually really liked Bridget Fonda in this movie. Not her character, but her performance. I thought she was pretty funny and like engaging at first. And then like her character became a little bit more annoying and then useless. So I, I don't really have any like desire or need to defend <laughs> this movie because there are a lot of problems with it. I don't hate watching it. Like, it's short. It has some good comedy. It definitely needed to kill Oliver Platt at a certain point. You beat me! Balls! Splendid lake, eh? Being a man on a lake like this, rubber raft, Sylvie Blake... You give like a cow. Who do we have from Fish and Game? Me. Who is this man? You can see the algae blooms just coming in. Looks almost stagnant. Hector Sear. Oh, the earth is round and so should you be. Who is he? I need topographic studies. You got any? Wait a second. You don't just fly in here and start barking orders. I apologize. I, I just don't want to lose the light and we've got time for a, a quick scout. Have you had a little work done? I have not. Who are you? Hector Sear. I said it once. Let me know when it sinks in, okay? Have you seen it? Mister. No. Excuse me. You came here to help you find it. A crocodile. Yeah. They've been migrating north, you know. This lake does connect to the ocean. It's not as far-fetched as it may sound. Crocodiles can't swim in salt water. Yeah, well, that'll be your little secret. Come on. We're losing time. Okay, so here's my thought on that. Oliver Platt plays this person who, like, whatever his credentials or whatever, his whole life is going to swim with crocodiles. It's barely mediocrely funny the way that they 
try to almost kill him off, it would have been so much funnier if that asshole showed up full of piss and vinegar and full of bravado and crowing about his credentials and, you know, like, Bridget Fonda's pissed off the moment that he gets there. It would have been so funny if Oliver Platt's character had been the one whose head got bitten off and it had happened immediately in the scene that he shows up in the movie. Less than one scene cameo, where he's the one who faint, who's, like, the expert, for him to be bitten in half immediately would have been so much better. I mean, like, you obviously want to use him and develop that character. Like, there's a, there's a lot of banter between him and Brennan Gleeson. You know, it's not priceless. But just at some point, you need, like, the character with all the hubris to be eaten. That's just... When you come into a creature feature, that is what you have signed the contract for. People with hubris need to be eaten. That's just the thing. That's part of the written contract that I give to every theater ticket attendant when I'm purchasing a ticket for a creature feature. With the Tom Jones music, the kind of high-strung, whiny female protagonist, the two men one-upping each other with insults... Even with the crocodile, it feels like an episode of Alligator McBeal. And so, in a way, I enjoy that. Not that it works, but it's very, very late 90s. It could only have been released in 1999 with, like, this sort of, like, to make a strong female, you really just make her, like, aggressive and annoying instead of an actual strong female. Like, there was this kind of era that I feel like you saw a lot of, like, female characters like this. And, like, she's act, she comes to, like, it's Maine. It's not, like, West Virginia, but she's acting like she's in, like, the, like, most remote, like, She's trashiest. acting like they sent her to the Amazon. Yeah, and it's like, Maine is nice, and it clearly, it looks beautiful here. And Right! It's literally Lake Placid, lady, come on. Okay, and I love Bridget Fonda. I love Bridget Fonda. I cannot stand her performance in this movie, and a lot of it I blame on the writing. But my god, just the shrillness and... The, the, like, combination of shrillness and that the, the fakeness of how city slicker she is just instantly aggravated me and did not let up. I wouldn't have minded it so much if it had gone somewhere, but it kind of gets imba- abandoned sure. because when Oliver Platt comes in, then it's, like, she comes in and she's bantering with Bill Pullman and Brennan Gleeson because she's, like, the city girl and they're right. the country bumpkins, supposedly. And then Oliver Platt comes in and he does the same thing and they basically just forget about her and she becomes, like, just kind of, like... The damsel in distress. Yeah. Of. So I wouldn't have minded it so much if there had been, like, kind of an arc there, if there had been, like, a real development between her and Bill Pullman. First time I've ever actually, you know, been in the middle of anything. Is that why you're here to get in the middle of something? Maybe. I've always read about what's happened. I've I've never. We should go to bed. We should go to uh, rest. We should go to our separate tents and and here and get some. Go. Chris, what do you the the Bill Pullman Bridget Fonda chemistry is off the charts in the sense that it 
doesn't register on the charts. <laughs> I don't have a response to that. I I don't disagree. I just think like the first she is annoying in the first 15 minutes, but I think you could capitalize on that and then make an arc out of it so that it would be sure enjoyable that she had undergone this transformation and it's just such a short movie that there really isn't even time for that and she basically isn't in the movie after Oliver Platt shows up and it just becomes even Bill Pullman is basically like doesn't have anything to do after that it's really just the Brennan Gleason Oliver Platt show which again would like I don't mind so much if it pays off with like a crocodile eating one or both of them in a in an invent- inventive way. But David E. Kelly clearly like likes these characters too much to have them be eaten and cares yes. more about their banter than the story of the crocodile. Yes. Like the the moment that I marked for Oliver Platt and Brendan Gleason was like Oliver Platt's about to go diving in the water and he gives some of my least favorite David E. Kelly dialogue ever, which is maybe later you can chew the bark off my bed fat log and brendan gleason says after he's already dived into the water was that like a homosexual remark and it's like so fatuous and it's like fake edgy in a way that david e kelly almost always does and that makes him so grating and annoying to me because it's so clearly only the voice of david e kelly and like i love both oliver platt and brendan gleason especially as performers but i just don't think that the material is good enough for them to sell it convincingly as coming from characters rather than just coming from David E. Kelly's banter that he liked to write. But I will say, there's one David E. Kelly runner in this with Bridget Fonda when she keeps getting hit with severed heads. I knew that was going to be it. Don't throw heads at me. I, I wrote down as well. This, you want to mush it there. I'm not mushing it. Uh, you, you might mush it. It's a little soft. Oh, God, for Christ's sake, I'm not mushing it. <laughs> I do genuinely love that. And again, if it had leaned at least more in that direction in the kind of storytelling that happens or like having more kills just to the point where it gets even more ridiculous how often, it could have been so much funnier. Yeah. They decide that the plot of the end of this movie is that they don't want to kill the crocodile. They want to save it, which is never a good plot for these kinds of movies. It's never going to happen. It can never happen. Like we have seen seen this creature eat several people like we are not rooting for the creature like it never works and a lot of the movies try and do that and it's just like let creature features be creature features like in real life they may be animals that deserve understanding of their predatory instincts in a movie they're a monster and you can't feel sorry for it Rewatching this movie in particular really crystallized that like there is something i think inherently colonialist and white about the creature feature and about the way that nature is depicted in the creature feature, the way that animals and the way that all women 
are considered invaders, intruding into men's space, and hindering men's power. There's something that's very divine right about the ways that white men aren't just able to, but required to dominate and destroy nature and animals, specifically in order to protect, like, women and children and protect their own interests. And, like, I know these are all really silly movies, but there's this narrative undercurrent to them that I think is very tribal and geared toward making men feel powerful. And like we were talking about earlier, like me going to see these movies with my dad, like there's something very macho and and male, especially white male centric about the characters and who has to be triumphant in these movies. I'm not sure I see that in this movie. Our next movie, we can revisit this theory because <laughs> I think it's definitely pertinent there. But I feel like this is almost like the opposite of that because these characters are all so ridiculous and like they end up like liking the creature and like basically like, you know, capturing it instead of killing it. And well, but then at the very end, Brendan Gleeson pulls out the, his bomb gun and literally vaporizes another slightly shorter crocodile that shows up like literally turns it into a fine red mist and like that's the closest thing to a final kill that this movie has and again it's like the man gets the final kill like even when a woman is supposedly the lead character well yeah that doesn't make any sense because they've gone through all this trouble to like save the one crocodile and then another one shows up which fine if you want to have two of them but and then is immediately neutralized so it's like why even bother with the story of having two and he like kills it so quickly that it's like wait weren't we all just going through so much effort to save this other crocodile but we can quickly kill this one it doesn't make any sense the actual end of this movie is you see the crocodile strapped to the bed of a truck and it's being driven i think down to florida or something and i wish that there was like a real third act where it got off of there and was like on the highway like causing mayhem or something like that this movie really needed like a real ending and it just just like all the characters survive there's no like real payoff to any of it it's just like oh we captured this and i guess we're good now well let's talk about what this movie does and who this movie slots in instead of having a third act one miss betty white are you speaking about the ending of this movie which features baby crocodiles nibbling her toes that is how this movie ends yeah i mean she's basically like the bad guy of this movie it turns out Like, she's the one who was, like, feeding this crocodile for years and years. And at the end of the movie, she's, like, feeding the little croc babies. I mean, blessings be upon her name. She rests in the firmament in in the highest reaches of heaven. How does her character hold up now? Oh, you! Go ahead! Can't take a cow by eminent domain! We just did! We won't let her get hurt, ma'am! You're all cocksuckers! I knew it first, I just didn't want to say it. We know what we're doing. We got a cow hanging from a helicopter. I mean, it's always good to see Betty White, so there's that. I feel like she was one of the most prominently, like, marketable parts of this, and that this led to a lot of her, like, rapping granny-type cameos in movies. Yeah, I'm not sure how they sold it exactly, but it was clear that she was going to be a foul-mouthed granny in this movie, and one who was kind of rooting for the crocodile, which she actually says at a certain point. It doesn't bother me, but it's not as funny as it used to be, because I don't think 
seeing an old lady swear is as unexpected. Like, I guess maybe it was in, in 1999, but it isn't now. And it, I mean, it reminds me of why I think David E. Kelly made this movie, which is so that he could say things like fuck shit that he can't say on TV. Like, you just know it's it's a David E. Kelly thing because Bridget Fonda threatens a lawsuit. Like, as soon as she gets to the town, I'm like, oh my God, this is so David E. Kelly. Like, I almost wish it just turned into a court case. Or like Cameron Manheim shows up. <sighs> Yes, please. The only other thing I really need to mention is that the sheriff's deputy offers to have sex with Oliver Platt, apropos of nothing, to stop him from going into the Crocs lair. It is such a weird and gross moment. It was pretty awful. Mm, It didn't, like, bother me because I felt like she was only saying that to get him to do it and then wouldn't have had sex with him. But she's kind of a random character and, like, not developed enough. She's, like, hot female cop. That's pretty much it. Yeah. You think she's kind of there to get eaten because she's, like, an attractive female who's not that important, which is usually someone who gets eaten around that time of a movie. Eh, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what to say. It didn't bother me, but it also wasn't, like, super funny. Like, it, I feel like it's B writing. Like, it's... it's all, It also felt very 90s. Yeah, and it's not... Very, very 90s. It didn't really, like, bother me, but it's not, like, really funny, really great writing. It's, it's passable. The Lake... It's not called Lake Placid, by the way. It's not? No. Th- there's a moment in the movie where Brennan Gleeson, I think, says, like, oh, they wanted to call it Lake Placid, but that was taken, because it is a real name of a lake, I think, in New York, maybe? Not named Lake Placid. So even though there are multiple sequels <laughs> of the Lake Placid against an anaconda, it's a mess. I mean, yeah, I have no strong desire to defend this movie. I don't dislike it as much as you do, but I, I also don't dislike your dislike of it. Now we're going to leave the lake and take a dive into the deep blue sea. With this research, we could practically wipe out degenerative brain disease. Think of the generations that will be saved. Exactly how many sticks of dynamite would you have to set off in your ears before your head cleared? You wouldn't understand. I wouldn't, huh? Dumb old Carter wouldn't understand that you used us, that you used me. Someone on the water who wouldn't make waves. Someone who wouldn't ask too many questions, because he had something to lose. You don't see what we've done here. And what you've done is taken God's oldest killing machine and given it will and desire. What you've done is knock us all the way to the bottom of the goddamn food chain. It's not a great leap forward in my book. People will save. Jim? Brenda? Us? All right, people. These sharks are thinking hard and clear. So here's the riddle. What does an 8,000-pound Mako shark with a brain the size of a flathead V8 engine and no natural predators think of? Deep Blue Sea swam its way into theaters July 28th, 1999. Directed by Rennie Harlan and written by Duncan Kennedy and Donna and Wayne Powers, Deep Blue Sea stars Thomas Jane, Saffron Burroughs, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Rappaport, Stellan Skarsgård, and Ada Totoro as the scientists and staff aboard an undersea research laboratory. 
In the search for a cure for Alzheimer's disease, these scientists genetically engineer sharks, and in the process of making them genetically superior, they create three super sharks with incredible intelligence and cunning. After a massive storm wrecks their facility, these sharks hunt down the scientists and researchers one by one as they try to make their escape. As I mentioned earlier, Walt Conti created the animatronic sharks in Deep Blue Sea, and his official credit in the film is for shark action, which I think is just a tremendous term. <laughs> there is no shark voice in this movie, sadly, but Frank Welker and Mary Kay Bergman provided the voices for LL Cool J's Parrot, which has no given name in the film. <laughs> The budget is estimated to have been $60 million. It made nearly $74 million at the U.S. box office, and over $165 million total worldwide. So it was a hit. Critical reviews are surprisingly mixed to positive for Deep Blue Sea. Joe Morgenstern wrote in the Wall Street Journal, Wreckage is half the story, the better half, since Mr. Harlot is a true poet of demolition. He chronicles the laboratory's demise with astonishing action sequences that flow seamlessly one into another, leaving us little time to think about what lies ahead, and no time to prepare for several truly stunning and stomach-turning surprises. David Anson wrote in Newsweek, This highly unlikely story about genetically enhanced sharks that terrorize the scientists who created them is one summer movie that delivers exactly what it promises, non-stop popcorn thrills. Two taglines for Deep Blue Sea that I liked were, Your worst fear is about to surface. And the other one was, How fast can you swim? <laughs> Some fun Deep Blue Sea facts. Rennie Harlan, the director, hadn't had a hit movie since 1993's Cliffhanger, so there was a lot riding on the line for Rennie Harlan here. They filmed primarily in Fox Baja Studios in Rosarito, Mexico. LL Cool J, who plays the research station's chef named Priest, also contributed two songs to the film's soundtrack, one of which closes the film and will close our episode. A direct-to-video sequel, Deep Blue Sea 2, was released in 2018. A third film, Deep Blue Sea 3, very creatively titled, was released July 28, 2020. Did you watch Deep Blue Sea when it came out first, and what did you think seeing it now? I Deep Blue did. <laughs> yeah, I saw this in theaters. Apparently was able to convince my dad to take me to this one. <laughs> Not like Flaccid. I own this film on DVD, so I clearly purchased it at some point shortly <laughs> after, you know, it came out. So I enjoyed this movie at the time when I heard those critical reviews. Like it reminded me of where cultural mindset was at the time where this movie had surprises that I'm sure we'll talk about, <laughs> one notably, but I think it subverted some expectations. And so it felt fresh in a way that is hard to grasp now but yes at the time it felt fresh fresh enough for me to buy and own and watch a couple more times i saw it when it first came out this was 1999 so by this point i was definitely seeing r-rated movies uh really often in theaters with my dad i would basically only go with my dad because anything, especially like this, that we knew was violent, my mom would not want to go see. I bet that we saw this in theaters. And also, it was the exact kind of big, dumb movie, like I talked about earlier, that we would have totally rented from Blockbuster or watched on HBO the second it was out. And this became just one of my all-time 
favorite dumb comfort movies. I have become a real fan of Rennie Harlan and his particular brand of incredibly loud, dumb schlock. I love this movie. I loved it the first time I saw it, and I still unironically love it now. I think Rennie Harlan, like, Long Kiss Goodnight, I think, is a genuinely good movie. Still very dumb. (laughs) But I love putting on Rennie Harlan movies, again, when I'm just, like, feeling shitty and want something dumb and funny that I know will have some really fun action sequences, but will overall not challenge my brain in any way. (laughs) And, And yeah, I mean, I loved this movie from the very start, especially for that twist and others. And I still love it. So what do you what do you think now, Chris? What do you think of this shark tale? Um, Are you a fin of this movie? I remembered it by, you know, that one twist. The goodwill from that, like, reverberated out to the rest of the movie and made me think that I liked it. And then when I rewatched it, I did not like it. <laughs> I guess I don't, like, totally hate it because... You know, it it still delivers some things, but really, like, the effects are really bad. Like, I think they are the worst of any of these movies. The CG sharks look like a video game. Like, they basically just, like, move in lateral lines, like, basically wiggling a little bit, but they do not move at all like animals. I really think this was the time at which it became probably cheaper for them to do CGI, maybe cheaper for them to do CGI and film it in the complicated way they needed to versus doing animatronics. Yeah, this was a... I mean, all of these last three movies have bad CGI in them, but this is the one that uses it the most, I think, and to the least good effect, because it just, like, they rely on it so much, and you see too much of the sharks. It's not like a quick, like, jump out of the water, and it goes back in. It's like you see sharks swimming, and they just look... I mean, I think in one of the Jaw sequels, maybe the third one, there's, like, a clay shark that looks so fucking fake, and honestly, they look like that. That's amazing. I haven't seen a lot of Rennie Harlan's movies in a long time, but I really feel like, judging by this movie, he has no flair for suspense. Like, obviously, this movie, more than any of the rest of these, like, begs comparisons to Jaws, which is never flattering to the movie compared to Jaws. But, like, that movie is such a master class in suspense and building tension. (laughs) And, you know, there are these scenes of various people in the water and you don't know who's going to be eaten or what's going to happen. I don't need to sing Spielberg's praises here. We have we can do that enough. Jaws has been plenty lauded enough, but this is just like shock <laughs> over suspense. Like there are shocks in this movie, but there is no suspense. And if anything's setting up, it's going to be paid off in like five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the opening of this movie already feels like total trash. It's four <laughs> attractive MTV rejects on a boat, attacked by a shark. I will give the movie a little credit for it actually, like, the shark does not even eat any of them. Like, it is uh, stopped first by Thomas Jane, but, (laughs) like, they knock a Pinot Noir into the water (laughs) as if it's blood, as if it's, like, attracting the shark. I had to rewatch the intro again, like, even after rewatching the whole movie, because I was like, wait, how does this movie actually open again? Like, I feel like mentally I'd just forgotten that whole intro. It's really bad. I mean, I don't particularly like the rest of this movie, but it at least has, like, (laughs) legitimate actors. Like, this feels like one of its direct-to-video sequels already in the very opening of this movie. 
Say what you will about Thomas Jane. He's no Shakespeare, but he does spear sharks. <laughs> yeah, I just invite you to say what you will about Thomas Jane. It's kind of baffling to me that he's the lead of this movie. Well, I mean, is he or is Stefan Burroughs the lead of this movie? These are good questions. He's not my least favorite part of this movie. He's fine, like, as a performer, like, he does what he is required to do. He's a... Well, I was gonna call him a character, but I'm not sure that might be too much. He's just a man... He's an actor. Yeah, a man with a spear is really what he is. I couldn't call him a leading man, but he is a man. Yeah. Like, (laughs) more generic than generic has ever been. Has no personality traits other than is a man. I believe that's his only qualification for being in this movie. Well, I didn't know whether to save this for later or not, but I'm just gonna have to say it. It's like Saffron Burroughs is the other character, and she is awful. Not her, not as a performer. I mean, she's not, I don't think she's great, but it's not really Saffron Burroughs' fault. But the character is really just the worst. Look, Chris, not a day goes by when I'm not trying to personally abide by the Harvard Genetics Compact. That is the air rights of Deep Blue Sea in the sense that it's this term that's just completely meaningless jargon, but it keeps getting invoked in very serious tones in this movie. Right, yeah. So sh- she starts off the movie in some kind of board meeting, conference with executives <laughs> who are trying to cancel her project, <laughs> which she is apparently doing all by herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all by herself. No one else is clued into any of the details of her project. She has made the sharks all smarter Secretly, no one on her team knows this. She did genetic manipulation single-handedly. And she's so aggressive. Like, she's constantly, like, (laughs) yelling at people that they don't understand. Because her dad had Alzheimer's, I believe, is her backstory. Tell me, Mr. Franklin, have you ever known anyone with Alzheimer's? Well, no. By the end, all my father could do was ask why my mother wasn't at home. And each time I told him she was dead, I had to watch him take that loss like a car wreck. 200,000 men and women develop Alzheimer's each year. What if you could end all that suffering with a single pill? Give me till Monday morning, 48 hours. I'll give you results that'll skyrocket your stock price or I'll help you pack the lab myself. It's your call. One of the sharks has just escaped, nearly ate those four people, and she's just like, but you don't understand how important this is. Like, she's borderline like Nomi from Showgirls, how aggressive she is to everyone at all moments. And she's also like that, she's got Nomi energy, but simultaneously like supervillain energy. Yes. Like, serious Theranos vibes. Yes. I love the scene where they pretend to do science and they bring brain cells back to life with the magic shark juice. Like live, like you see the brain. Yes. Yeah, it's And you see the brain cells under a microscope and I would like to please take the magic shark juice. I need the magic shark juice for my brains because they don't work anymore. Where can I get the shark juice? Well, I mean, in the ocean, I don't think they ever name where they are. It's like, yeah, they don't. What they ocean? Don't. It's in that one sea that's blue and deep. 
introducing two cc's of the protein complex into cultured, inactive brain neurons of an Alzheimer's patient. And what you're looking for here is lightning in a bottle. Protein complex is interacting with the neurons. Neurons are becoming hyperosmotic. Membrane integrity is improving. Second, two, three. Still firing. Four, five, six. Six point five six zero seconds. I'll be there. <laughs> no, sir. For six point five six zero seconds, you saw what it's like not to be down. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> this is a whole like facility in the ocean somewhere that they call, I think, Aquatica. And they kind of set it up as if it's, like, you're gonna, like, take a tour through it and know all these, like, cool locations. But then they skip all that, and, like, you, it's totally generic. Like, there was such an opportunity for this to be a real location, like, the Nostromo and Alien. Yes! And for it to have, like, specific areas people have to get through. And then it's, like, basically, like, a tube. Like, that's... <laughs> they go through a tube for most of the movie. Yeah, but yeah, Saffron Burroughs, I need to perform her dramatic monologue. Their brains weren't large enough to harvest sufficient amounts of the protein complex, so we violated the Harvard Compact. Gemini used gene therapies to increase their brain mass. A larger brain means more protein. As a side effect, the sharks got smarter. You stupid bitch. And scene. Amazing. Amazing. I felt like I was in the room... I felt yeah. like I was there. I had that written down as the best moment because I hated her character so much and kind of couldn't remember if she lived or died in this movie, but <laughs> I did a little research and saw that Rennie Harlan and, and the writers, if, if such people <laughs> exist, did not realize that she was the villain of this movie or awful and that audiences would hate her and she was supposed to survive and like save the day they thought she was the protagonist and only after like test audiences were like we hate her were they like oh shit like everyone hates this movie because this woman survives and they had to like reshoot it so that she died because her character is so awful but like that just speaks to like what i think is wrong with this movie one of the things is just that like there's such a little sense of character that they do not know that they their heroine is actually the awful, awful villain of this movie. Like, that's how disconnected they are from who these people are and how they behave not like real humans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I think we need to give this movie some credit. This is the wettest movie ever made. From the standpoint of water, it's the wettest one we've ever seen. It's it's wet. It's I'll, I'll give it that. so wet. In my view, LL Cool J and that parrot are the stars of this film. Amy, the talking gorilla, meet Bird, the talking parrot. Exactly. Like, I, I think ser the, the stuff with the parrot is hilarious, I think. And I love LL Cool J's performance in this movie as well. Like, I find him very charismatic and fun. Damn. I know. One neck feels like a whole week. Relative. What do you mean? Einstein's theory of relativity. 
grab hold of a hot pan, a second can seem like an hour. Put your hands on a hot woman, an hour can seem like a second. It's all relative. I spent four years at Caltech and that's the best physics explanation I've ever heard. I managed to forget that he was in this movie while watching it this time, which means I also forgot his parrot, but of course they came <laughs> flooding back to me as soon as I saw it. I think he's okay, like, more amusing than most of the rest of this movie. Like, definitely more personality than the leads. And he seems at least aware of the genre conventions of the thing that his character is in. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, again, with the, like, not understanding, really, is, like, they were going to kill him off very early in the film. Like, did not realize what they had here. But I also just feel like he saw Ice Cube and Anaconda and was like, I can do that. And it's like, totally. But not not really. I mean, he's, he's a solid B-plus to Ice Cube's A. For me, the closest this movie successfully gets to suspense is the scene where he's in his kitchen, where it's completely flooded, and he's trapped inside his own kitchen oven, and he has to use a fire axe to chop his way out. I think that's great. I think it is super suspenseful. I think it's super claustrophobic. I don't know about you. I'm not usually super claustrophobic, but it, like, triggers anxiety for me to, like, see someone trapped in that cramped of a space. And especially, like, of course, it's very stupid that the shark is able to turn the oven on underwater. But I love that. (laughs) And it makes it have such a super satisfying conclusion when he, like, escapes and then literally blows the fucking shark up in the kitchen. You ate my bird. Put a spider in that oven and then we'll talk. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is one of the better (laughs) sequences in this movie. I actually really like the blonde scientist. She's the only... I enjoy her too. ...other character I like. She dies kind of horribly and I don't like... Like, this movie feels a little mean-spirited in a way that a lot of creature features do, but most of the ones we've talked about don't. Like, most of the ones are, like, the more gentle creature features that I actually like more. Because I really don't like kind of, like, soulless horror and, like, like gore for gore's sake. And that really felt like something from that. Like, that just kind of, like, rubbed me the wrong way. Rewatching it this time, I noticed that the way that she dies is that the shark bites her directly in the crotch. Yeah. And it's, like, I get that logistically that's because she's, like, trying to like swim up and out and trying to get Thomas Jane to like pull her up to safety. But I gotta say, I share your sentiment on that. And this time around, it did really stick out. I do really enjoy that character. I wish she had been around more because she seems like one of the only people who's kind of grounded and a bit world weary in the sense that I believe that this is someone who's been doing that work and has probably been doing the thankless version of that work and you know like is is trying to see it through because she genuinely wants to do whatever this project is and actually succeed scientifically i did have that kind of negative reaction to that to that kill this time yeah because everything else is like pretty comedic with shark kills or 
at least like very quick. And that one is like unnecessarily like drawn out and just like you like actually like feel like the pain of it. And it's just, I just think a smarter movie maybe might have at least done that to like Saffron Burroughs because like she's the one who set this whole thing in motion. Like, would that have been better? I don't know. That might have still just felt kind of gross, but right. at least a character that you kind of want to see I suffer mean, a little bit more. To be a little bit fair, like the way that the sharks kill Stellan Skarsgård's character is very drawn out and clearly painful too. Like, in the sense that it's, like, it's clear that they're directly taking revenge on these specific people for what they did to them. Well, and that's her, like, boyfriend or husband or something, too. So she's already, like, grieving so much for him. Yeah. That there's just, like, a lot of, like, pain in this movie that isn't acknowledged and that's seems like a weird thing to say in like a shark attack movie but like again to compare it to Jaws is like you have that horrific scene where like the boy is eaten but then you have his mother grieving and you like there's like a cathartic moment of that that acknowledges suffering and pain and like tragedy and like this movie really just it's a lot maybe a lot to ask of Rennie Harlan but like really doesn't do that and even Saffron Burroughs talking about her dad's Alzheimer's doesn't really successfully do that and doesn't really successfully, like, delve into that character's pain. No, why on earth would you not, like, begin her character with... I mean, I think he's dead in this movie, but why not have him be alive and having Alzheimer's and she's open with her with her dad and she's like, I'm gonna find a cure for you. He's still alive. Like, she still feels maybe that there's some hope that she could even, like, cure him. She does a video call via a blue laser telescope from the sea, the undersea research facility. If she can just find a diamond the size of her face... <laughs> She can cure Alzheimer's. Yeah, maybe if the special effects had looked better, I would like this movie more. Or maybe if the characters had been better. Or maybe if, like, the suspense... (laughs) Like, there was actually, like, real suspenseful scenes. The combination of all these things kind of failing just really kind of fell flat for me. I get it. Like, and I think the second half of the movie definitely loses steam. Like, it feels like it... Again, like Anaconda does, it just eventually goes on rails and it's just on autopilot. And, like, the second half of the movie is just an escape movie and this kind of like in these like nondescript tunnels and it's so ugly looking like a lot of it is because it feels like it was like cgi enhanced like it doesn't feel like a real set at all but also like cgi enhanced again in a way that feels like they ran out of budget and we're like okay we gotta do only one location now for the whole third act yeah and just like no like design to this like you're setting the whole movie in this thing and you couldn't design it to look appealing and cool or mysterious like it just looks so generic this movie just felt like ugly visually as well as like kind of ugly spiritually (laughs) and the climax (laughs) like it felt very Michael Bay especially the climax but like it had that kind of sheen of like I don't care just blow something up yeah in like a completely emotional vacuum too i make no defenses for how much i enjoy this movie and especially like watching it now i could see pretty much all the flaws you mentioned (laughs) future future fans who live in glass houses should not throw stones (laughs) or throw lighters for that matter what we haven't really discussed is samuel l jackson in this film definitely the most memorable character in this film although he is spoiler alert not in it for (laughs) the majority of the film but yeah he has a very surprised death at least was surprising in the moment oh i think it's the biggest thing for which this movie is known yeah like whatever legacy this movie 
has and whatever reputation as a cult film that it has is like entirely due to Samuel L. Jackson and the way that he's killed, how early in the movie that he's killed. Yeah, he's basically giving an inspirational speech and is killed mid-inspiration. Oh yeah, and like the inspirational speech is just all about like how all of the people who are there need to stick together and that they're going to make it out of this alive and the first thing that they're going to do is batten down these hatches and then chomp. And I feel like that would really work in a smarter movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does. It works in this movie in that moment, but then, like... Oh, I think it works in this movie. I don't know about you, but I remember, like, standing ovations in the theater when this happened. Because mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson, you know, wasn't maybe necessarily the pinnacle of his career by this point, but he was... He was Pulp Fiction guy, you know, like he was so well known. Took us a week to climb out. And somewhere, we lost hope. Now, I don't know exactly when we turned on each other. I just know that seven of us survived the slide, and only five made it out. Now, we took an oath that I'm breaking now. Swore that we say it was the snow that killed the other two. But it wasn't. Nature can be lethal. But it doesn't hold a candle to man. Now you've seen how bad things can get and how quick they can get that way. Well, they can get a whole lot worse. So we're not going to fight anymore! We're going to pull together, and we're going to find a way to get out of here. First, we're going to seal off this room. Yes, I I like to consider his moment of death in this movie gulp fiction. Oh, wow. That's going to reverberate for a bit. That's yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, no, it, it's true. I remember it being a, like a theatrical moment where people were, you know, laughing out of out of shock and stuff. Nowadays, you see a lot more attempts at subverting expectations, and you can kind of see these things coming. Definitely. I think at the time it was quite surprising. Yeah, I just wish that it had meant something where it was like, again, kind of like we talked about in Anaconda, when you take out the person who knows everything in the movie, then like, oh my god, what do we do? Like, you had felt like the loss of his character, which you don't at all, which is true of all of these characters. Like, none of them actually like feel like they are contributing to the survival of everyone else. Yeah, none of them feel indispensable at all. Yeah. Not even Thomas Jane, who should be, because he's the one who's like wrangling sharks but he doesn't really do much like there's just no like cleverness to this script and again like these are brain enhanced sharks so they're not real sharks but it's there's no (laughs) real behavior of sharks in this movie and i think that's so important to a good creature feature is like i said with anaconda is like uses the actual behavior of these creatures this basically is like let's throw all that out and let them swim backwards and make methodical plans about how to get out of this facility and it like that's not scary that's just weird son of a bitch what those fences are titanium underneath but on top they're just plain steel they've been hurting us pushing us where they want using us to flood the facility oh my god 
That's the answer to the riddle. Because that's what an 8,000 pound Mako thinks about. About freedom. About the deep blue sea. We have to kill her. Now, that's the first real smart thing you said all day. Yeah, well, and it's like 99% of this movie is about these people successfully avoiding being near the sharks. So, like, to me, I, f- I do feel like the moments that come closest to working really genuinely well and are whatever the closest thing to suspenseful this movie gets are when you have the animatronic sharks in those teeny tiny constricted flooded hallways with yeah. people trying to escape them. But, like, that barely ever comes into play at all. Like, it's almost only LL Cool J. A bit of Saffron Burroughs, maybe. Yeah. Um, when she's, like, swimming to, like, go get her research or something. Yeah, dumb bitch. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, but she just... Like, for someone who's supposed to be smart, she's like, I'm gonna go get my paperwork in a flooded room <laughs> while sharks are swimming around. And she has to take off her clothes in it's order to do that. it. That's what science is about. <laughs> oh, my God. Stripping with sharks. It's like, if you made the mayor the hero of Jaws and like didn't know that that was like not the guy that you should be rooting for I love that is there more to chew on or are we finished well speaking of fins uh I don't know if you noticed my hat but it's a lot like a shark fin we're gonna end the episode with this song but I just I I feel like we need to give it a special shout out because as LL Cool J explains to us his hat is like a shark's fin i originally heard this lyric as my head is like a shark's fin and i'm not claiming that makes any more sense but the hypothesis that someone's hat is like a shark's fin flies in the face of most of what i know about both hats and shark's fins there are hats that are shark fins uh i believe even at a jimmy buffett concert (laughs) i was gonna say that That feels like a real parrot head maneuver. Real Jimmy Buffett (laughs) energy in these episodes. JBE. We're getting buffeted by it to and fro. But uh, Cool J's hat is actually not like a shark fan. It is like a baseball cap. (laughs) It's like a hat. It's just a hat. And I know that like time (laughs) ages things poorly sometimes. Heals all wounds. But it I does not age things well. I don't understand how this was ever not just mortifying. <laughs> but I don't remember like people making fun of it at the time. Like, but they shoulda. <laughs> the video. Did you watch the music video? It is. I've seen it before, but I have. I did not rewatch it for this. Does it not hold up? Does it not hold up? Very well? It holds up about as well as a hat that's pretending to be a shark fin. Does he like perform like a maneuver of putting his hands in the shape of a shark fin or something? Like, does he do like a it's shark really fin? It's really just the dance? conviction with which he feels he seems to believe that okay. his hat really is like a shark fin. Okay. When it is not, you can see the hat in the video, it is just a hat. Apparently, there was an era where they would get Jimmy Buffett <laughs> to write a song about spiders <laughs> and Al Cool J to write a song about sharks. That really tried to like tie into the theme somehow. I really do wish that somehow this had like retroactively inspired Ice Cube to do a like Jungle Green. My scarf is like an anaconda, like some kind of rap battle there. That was just also nonsensical. I lay several eggs. I sit on the eggs for a period of weeks. It honestly couldn't be any worse than the LL Cool J. Like we're trying to be funny, but it doesn't make any more sense than it. Really, it really doesn't. Chris, do you have any closing thoughts about our creature features? Take me back to the ghetto. That's the last line of Deep Blue Sea. 
Just in general, I think to acknowledge the films that we did not cover in this uh, sex feature, because any more would have literally killed us all. Still might. Uh, there was The Relic in 1997 about a museum creature, mythical. I remember the poster for that being really enigmatic, but I never knew anything about that movie. It's not very good. There's Mimic by Guillermo del Toro, released also in 1987. That is a personal favorite of mine. We very nearly covered that in this episode and decided that giant cockroaches were just a bridge too far. But I think that kind of has a real anaconda energy of being while not exactly a great film, one that like delivers a lot of what you want from a creature feature, albeit not a real creature that exists in the wild. Yeah, and I mean, I do, I do plan on re-watching that, because I, I remembered enjoying it at the time, and I love Mira Sorvino, and I love Guillermo del Toro. There's also Deep Rising in 1998, about a cruise ship attacked by tentacle monsters. Wow, I had no idea what that movie was. It stars uh, Famke Jansen and Treat Williams. I watched that because people said it was good. You had to be there, I guess. People I thought lied. It was fucking awful. And Bats from 1999 <laughs> with one Dina Meyer, who I've name dropped in this episode disparagingly. Bats Entertainment. Not a good film. Not good. Not a good film. I saw that in theaters. I think I was one of 10 people in the world to see that in theaters. But it did spawn sequels like a lot of these movies did. I think that the 90s were kind of a peak of creature features in terms of them being relatively big budget movies, like mainstream movies released in theaters. There weren't a ton of those before, and there haven't been a ton of them since. Like, the only one I can think of is Eight-Legged Freaks from 2002. That starred David Arquette and Carrie Wurrrrrr. Oh, she was in that? She was in that. And I remembered seeing that in the theater, and that is like straight up a creature feature comedy very hard on the comedy part. You can imagine that I skipped that one. Yeah. (laughs) There was like Snakes on a Plane, obviously very leaning into comedy. The new Piranha movies, which are also very campy and also feel like Lake Placid posters come to life. There was Crawl a couple years ago. I really enjoy Crawl. I did not enjoy it very much, but a lot of people did, so I feel like somehow I missed whatever was good about that. Well, and also basically all of this genre has moved entirely into the direct-to-video sphere. Yeah. And almost exclusively, like, onto (laughs) sci-fi. Sci-fi has a whole universe, a multiverse, of Piranha Don versus Croc-A-Shark. Every combo platter you could imagine. Like, they basically have, like, given this genre to, like, who can come up with a pun for a title? And that's a movie, and there's so many of them. And it's like, I get why the pun of the title is funny, but why did you actually make the movie? (laughs) Yeah. The budgets and the effects and the caliber of the filmmaking is such that it's like, why? Why? You could just rerun the ones that were already successful. And it seems like that's basically what it does. (laughs) They just, like, remake the same things over and over again. Like, for as much as I love a lot of these 90s creature features, I certainly don't want to watch any of those movies. Um, Obviously, they are trying a lot less. (laughs) Even if you think some of these movies were not successful, like, they're all golden standard compared to, you know, what what comes out on, like, the sci-fi channel or something. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really see how they could come back, but I... You know, I kind of wish that they would be rescued from the kind of total schlock that they've become. 
I know. Well, and it's like, I think about it, and I, I really do think one of the missing elements that would be necessary to really get it back to, you know, I think what they can be at their best is practical effects, practical yeah. creatures and monster effects, people acting and reacting to physical things in their space. <laughs> Part of it is, of course, you know, writing and directing those other elements of filmmaking are, of course, necessary ingredients, but these are creature features, and so much of that depends on the creature of it. When that's not there, it's like, that is the missing essential element off of which everything else has to bounce. Yeah, I agree. You need a sense of something real, even if it's an effect that you can tell, you know, maybe isn't a real creature. It does need to have, like, a sense of, like, a physical thing, because that's so much a part of what these movies are about. Yeah, I think maybe of everything, these movies can't really be like totally cgi or else it just turns out to be like the scariest one of all cats and that's all the shark fin like hats were able to wear on this episode of when we were young on our next episode this october on the podcast we'll have a hobbling halloween good time in the snowy tundra as kathy bates chops open our car door with her axe carries us home with her, and causes us some considerable misery, even though she claims she's our number one fan. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or anywhere else you get your podcasts, and rate and review us five stars or more so that more people hear about the show. You can follow us on all the social medias at Show to suggest any new topics, and you can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can bring you more and even better episodes. I've been Seth. And I think we need Becky back. Hear <laughs> terrified screams, they surround my team. All you see is trails of blood. Even God won't intervene. Nightmares of darkness, my appetite is heartless. Even if we related, you eliminated regardless. In the deep blue underwater walls, half man, half shark, my jaws don't fall. Sharks play, weapons left behind. We dueling with the mind, you blind, crippling crazy.